the Bills here at KPFK. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, encouraging you to become a KPFK Sustainers Circle member now. A sustaining contribution of just $20 or more a month is one of the most popular levels for our donors, and it takes just minutes to contribute. Just go to kpfk.org slash support, then click Sustainers Circle, or call 818-985-2711. Thank you so much for your donation to KPFK, radio powered by the people. Hi, this is Joni Mitchell, and you are listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles and 98.7 FM Santa Barbara. KPFK Rebel Alliance News Los Angeles. In today's headlines, California's population is dropping. Actress Raquel Welch dies today. Jaden Taylor of Women's Leadership Project with a poetic commentary. Your Black History Fact of the Day with Mr. Ernest Krim III. Hal G. Lore of Voices for the California Nation speaks on how critical race theory needs California to fight for it. Only nine UE nations help with Syria's humanitarian catastrophe. Beijing and Tehran signed bilateral agreements in defiance of U.S. pressure. The BRICS summit in South Africa will focus on reconstructing global politics, economics, and financial architecture. Two South American nations try to defend their nation national sovereignty against global imperialism in Washington, London, and Brussels. All this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong. Actress Raquel Welch died today at the age of 82. According to a statement from creative management agency Media4, the statement reads, quote, The legendary bombshell actress of film, television, and stage passed away peacefully early this morning after a brief illness. Her career spanned over 50 years, starring in 30 films and 50 television series and appearances. The Golden Globe winner in recent, more recent years was involved in a very successful line of wigs, end of quote. A majority of news stories are being written this way today, while few others highlight the actress that was well known as being strong-willed and independent, which usually translates into difficult to work with. The L.A. Times writes that Welch took a role that no one wanted as a transgender woman in the adaptation of Gord Vidal's bestseller, Myra Breckenridge, which she liked Vidal's novel, but was unhappy with the final script of the film. She says, quote it as saying, each rewrite got further and further from making any sense. Welch also sued MGM Studios when they replaced her with a younger, more affordable actress in the 1980 film Canary Row. Welch received a $14 million settlement from the studio, but the battle may have cost her a film career. Welch came to Los Angeles as a single mother to pursue a career in acting. When told that her name was probably too exotic, according to the Times, she stated that she was proud of her Bolivian heritage. There is no word yet on funeral arrangements. The L.A. Times is reporting that California's population dropped by more than 500,000 people between April 2020 and July 2022. The population decrease was second only to New York, which lost about 15,000 more people than California, according to census data. 
The Time writes, quote, California has been seeing a decline in population for years, with the COVID-19 pandemic pushing even more people to move to other parts of the country, experts say. The primary reason for the exodus is the state's high-rise, high-housing costs. But other reasons include the long commutes, the crowds, and crime and pollution in the larger urban centers. The increased ability to work remotely, not having to live near a big city, has also been a factor, end quote. The Times spoke with director of the Center for Neighborhood Knowledge at UCLA, who says economic health and sociopolitical factors are driving people to leave the state, noting that the housing prices in California have pushed many to move to states where costs are lower. The Times went on to say that California lost about 211,000 people during the final year of the two-year span, from July 2021 to July 2022, according to data from the State Department of Finance. Nearly half, 113,048, were from Los Angeles County, the most populous of California's 58 counties. Meanwhile, Governor Spencer Cox of Utah says you don't have to you don't stay in California if you don't stay in California but you can't come here. Speaking last week at Washington at the White House, Cox said that quote Californians should stay in California in part because his state is beset by problems including housing and water shortages. Cox was attending the National Governors Association annual winter meeting. According to Cox, This last census confirmed that Utah was the fastest-growing state over the past 10 years, and our biggest problem are more growth-related. We would love for people to stay in California instead of coming as refugees to Utah. According to the U.S. Census, Utah's population grew from just over 2.7 million people in 2010 to more than 3.2 million in 2020, an increase in 18.3% is the highest in the nation. Cox said the state has grown while it's simultaneously confronting ongoing water and housing supply dilemmas. A majority of the state's residents are affected by the West's historic drought, and all of the state's 29 counties have disaster designations by the United States Department of Agriculture, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. Farmer John Meatpacking Plant, one of the largest employers in the city of Vernon, will be closing its only California site. Reporter Pedro Baez brings us the story. This past June, Farmer John announced that it would be closing its meatpacking plant in Vernon, California after more than 90 years of operations, impacting upwards of 2,000 workers. Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn pledged to help impacted workers get the job training and assistance they need to transition to good-paying union jobs. In the months since, the County of Los Angeles, State of California, City and the City of Los Angeles Officials, workforce development, labor management partnerships, and labor leaders have partnered in a massive effort to support the farmer John workers and connect them to opportunities and trading to get new union jobs with high wages and benefit packages. UFCW Local 770, the Center for Worker Training and Leadership and the Hospitality Training Academy, hosted events the entire week to provide support and registered apprenticeship and training opportunities for its impacted workers. Rebel Alliance News reached out to Smithfield Foods to come on to our microphones and join us for a brief interview to give their side of the story. Instead of coming on the air with us, they decided to send us a statement, which reads... Smithfield Foods has discontinued operations at our Vernon, California facility as we had previously announced in June 2022. We provided transition assistance to all team members and held an on-site external job fair in January attended by nearly 600 employees. We also met with employees who expressed interest in employment at other Smithfield locations. Farmer John has had the privilege of feeding, serving, and celebrating the community 
for more than nine decades. Following the closure of the Vernon facility, Smithfield will continue to serve customers in California with our Farmer John brand from existing facilities in the Midwest. And this came from Roy Atkinson, Director of External Communications for Smithfield Foods. For Rebel Alliance News, this is Pedro Baez. Thank you, Pedro Baez. A Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy has been arrested and charged with murder and vehicular manslaughter after an off-duty high-speed crash that killed a 12-year-old boy more than a year ago. Ricardo Castro, 28, is accused of speeding in his pickup truck on November 3, 2021, when he T-boned a car turning left at an intersection, killing Isaiah Rodriguez in that vehicle's passenger seat and injuring the, nine, injuring the boy's 19-year-old sister, according to authorities. Castro was off-duty at the time of the crash. Isaiah died at a Long Beach hospital, and his sister was treated for broken bones. Southgate police took Castro into custody Tuesday evening, according to booking records. He is being held in lieu of 2.03 million bail at the Twin Towers Correctional Facility downtown Los Angeles. Castro was charged Tuesday with murder, vehicular manslaughter, with gross negligence and reckless driving. Southgate Peace Police chief said the charges were the result of a 16-month investigation by his department. The Times quotes Los Angeles District Attorney um, George Gascon as saying Castro had received rigorous training on safe driving as a sheriff's deputy, yet had been involved in multiple collisions and received a number of traffic tickets, including some for speeding. If convicted, Gascon said Castro could face 25 years to life in prison. Elsewhere, the Los Angeles City Controller Kenneth Mejia has been monitoring the movements of the Los Angeles Police Department during recent protests as a means of, quote, understanding how our tax dollars are being spent. The Times reports that staffers in the controller's office went to three consecutive days of protests in downtown Hollywood and Venice to gather firsthand impressions of conditions on the ground. Mejia took office in December after campaigning on a promise to bring accountability to the LAPD. In recent weeks, Mejia's office has requested information on the cost of sending police officers to protests. He and some of his top aides have served as protest monitors. Mejia on Twitter said his team is not focused on the protesters' behavior. Our aim is to hold the city accountable, not to scrutinize the conduct of community members exercising their rights, he wrote last month. The Los Angeles Police Protective League, which represents more than 9,200 officers, asked L.A. City Attorney and LAPD Chief to set up a meeting with Mejia and the union to create protocols for the interactions between his team and rank-and-file officers. However, L.A. City Attorney Feldstein Soto declined to set up a meeting, telling the league in a letter Monday that, that both the city controller's office and the LAPD are her clients and that meetings with them would be subject to attorney-client privilege. Mejia's staff Members have also gone to at least one of Mayor Karen Bass's inside safe operations at which outreach workers have moved homeless residents indoors. And the controller has approached officers inside City Hall asking them on one occasion what their duties are and why they're there. The L.A. Daily Breeze reports that the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority, LASA, has completed its count of the homeless population in Los Angeles County. More than 6,000 volunteers plus employees from several cities and LASA staffers counted the unhoused on the streets, outside vacant buildings and cars, RVs, and tent encampments beginning in January to get a handle on the number of unhoused and their locations. 
The Daily Breeze says the data from the unsheltered point-in-time count, as well as the separate youth count from January 22nd through January 31st, are combined with three months of surveys from a team of demographers at USC to formulate a picture of the county's homeless population. The final numbers and maps will be released by Rolasa in late spring or early summer. According to L.A. Daily News, several Los Angeles City Council members are calling for a tenant's right-to-counsel program to provide free legal representation to lower-income Angelinos facing evictions who can't afford an attorney. A motion introduced by Councilmember Nathia Rahman on Tuesday, February 14th, directs the City Housing Department to report back to the Council within 60 days with recommendations to create a program for tenants earning 80% or less than the area's median income. The report is a, the, the report is expected to include estimates for staffing needs and costs. Five Council members signed as co-presenters of the motion. Approximately 30,000 eviction notices are filed each year in Los Angeles, but when tenants can't afford an attorney, the eviction notices often go uncontested, even if they're illegal, tenant rights advocates say. The purpose of a right-to-counsel program will be to promote housing stability and keep Angelinos from falling into homelessness in a city where a staggering number of people living on the streets have become a local emergency. Advocates point to other large cities that have right-to-counsel programs and say that's one run reason L.A. should, too. In New York City, 74% of tenants facing evictions have legal representation, and 84% of those who are represented in court by attorneys provided by the city got to stay in their homes, according to the council motion filed Tuesday. In San Francisco, which has a right-to-counsel policy since 2018, two-thirds of tenants are represented by attorneys, and 60% of those who got full representation were able to remain in their homes, according to the motion. The Santa Barbara Independent is reporting that supporters and protesters of a drag queen story hour gathered on opposite sides of State Street outside of La Acarta Plaza last Saturday morning. Inside the plaza, Santa Barbara drag queen Miss Angel Damone was reading children's stories to attending families at the Crafters Library. The Crafters Library has hosted its monthly story time with Miss Angel since December 2021 as a free, family-friendly event featuring storytelling and crafting activities. Saturday was the first time that the event had been met with active displays of opposition. The protest was organized by the Santa Barbara County Republican Party, SBCRP, which sent out flyers earlier last week calling on members to peacefully and respectfully protest the event. The small group of protesters held signs reading, Keep Kids Innocent, Stop Mocking Women, and Perversion Isn't Education. SBCRP member Linda Foster said reasoning behind organizing the protest was non-political. She said that it was not out of hate, but based on feelings of sadness and fright around children being exposed to the radical and abnormal image of drag queens. Saturday's protest mirrors that of others targeting drag queen story hours around the country, coinciding with a recent uptick in anti-drag legislation in states such as Arizona and Texas. Many of the recently proposed censorship bills include banning minors from viewing or participating in drag shows, and a few explicitly ban perform drag performances at schools and libraries. Protesters were outnumbered by nearly three to one by the group of more than 50 supporters of the event. The Crafters Library says it will continue to host storytime events with Miss Angel. 
The Long Beach Press-Telegram states that the city will conduct a study to determine whether it has resources to establish a senior safe home, an interim housing location for elderly folks experiencing abuse and who are at risk of becoming homeless. The Los Angeles, the Los, the Long Beach, the Long Beach City Council says there are about 81,000 residents aged 60 or older in Long Beach, according to a staff report. Based on research conducted by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 8,000 of those are estimated to have experienced some form of elder abuse, or another 800 were at risk of experiencing homelessness. The vast numbers of elderly People at risk of abuse and subsequent homelessness, the report added, are compounded by serious gaps in public services and available care. There are currently no facilities geared toward providing victims of elder abuse with shelter in Long Beach or Los Angeles County. Senior safe homes typically provide short-term housing and other social services to help victims of abuse recover and return to their communities, the staff report said. The shelters are typically housed in long-term facilities or homes. The Press Enterprise in Riverside reports that New Resource Center seeks to help affected families as the city navigates its homelessness problem. Family Promise of Riverside, which opened its day center January 2nd to provide services to families with children who are experiencing homelessness, will celebrate its progress with a ribbon-cutting and community meeting on Thursday, February 16th, at the building it shares with Magnolia Presbyterian Church. Family Promise Executive Director said the population served by the organization isn't that which often comes to mind when one imagines a homeless individual. The largest demographic of homeless people are actually children under the age of 18, according to the executive director. Families work really hard to stay unseen to protect their custody rights. An estimated 2.5 million children experience homelessness in a given year, according to a 2014 report by the National Center on Family Homelessness. The organization helps provide help, provides help for families in the process of getting back on their feet. Resources include computer access, supplies like diapers and toiletries, and classes that range from financial Partnership with the Family and Kids Foundation has has new children clothes for those in need. The executive director said the organization fields 50 to 100 navigation calls each week, helping families figure out what resources they need and currently is working to prevent 10 to 20 families from becoming homeless by providing resources and community and communicating with their landlords. The center currently has about 20 trained volunteers with the goal of increasing it to 50. KPFK listeners in Riverside who want more information can contact Family Promise at area code 951-266-9158. That's area code 951-266-9158. Welcome to the <clears throat> KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Mr. Ernest Krim III creatively strategizes how we can use our glorious past to create a better future, entrenched in equitable practices. He brings your Black History Fact of the Day. Happy Black History Month. Do you know the name of the first black person in space? If your first time hearing about Arnaldo Mendez's achievement is now, even though he went to space in September of 1980, don't feel ashamed. It's for a reason. See, the reason why you don't know about Brother Arnaldo Mendez's achievement is because he's Afro-Cuban, meaning that he lived and continues to live in a communist country. And not only did he live in Cuba in a communist country, but he was also aligned with Fidel Castro and his political beliefs. He was also a part of an organization that supported the Cuban Revolution. And he went on to join the Cuban armed forces after their successful revolution against the American-backed Batista regime. And that was in the 60s. By 1980, this brother made history by going to space with the Soviet Union. 
Now, of course, America wouldn't celebrate that. And because of that, he's been absent from our historical memory. I wonder what else they've been hiding. KPFK is in our February membership drive. We are relying on our programming and our mostly unpaid programmers to bring you content about science, law, arts, culture, literature, government, music, without commercial interruptions, without selling or tracking your data or your interests. That means we rely mainly on your free will donations and your own volunteer services to stay in operation. If you can help us find angel investors who will help us stay in our building, if you can help us write grants or do other development work to generate revenue for KPFK, if you can do outreach or social media promotion or host a house party, we need you. Email our GM, Michael Novick, at gm at kpfk.org and let us know how you would like to help. And of course, you can also help by going to kpfk.org and donating, pledging securely online. Thank you. Women's Leadership Project community activist Jaden Taylor brings a powerful poetic commentary. Hi, my name is Jaden Taylor. I'm 20 years old, and this is my poem, Justice for Who. We pledge allegiance to your flag of the United States of America and to your republic for which it stands, with liberty and justice for who. We get on our knees on your ground because your white ego can't stomach to see us rise above you proud in our melanin while your white shakes beneath your layers of oppression, racism, and your trigger finger that never leaves a trigger in the face of black people. We end up on your news, your radio stations, and in your newspapers. Our families end up in your courts fighting for our people against your police officers. We get penalized for being colored in your country. You love to tell us our black don't crack while trying to shatter our melanin like glass. Our black does not crack in the face of adversity. Our black does not crack in the face of white cops. Our black cracks when that same cop put his gun rights over a black life. Do not tell us that we are equal with your flag of red, white, and blue in one hand, while in the other you beat us until we're black and blue. Beat us until we're numb. Beat us until we bleed the red in your flag. Shoot us until your clips are empty. Shoot us until the house once full of innocent black children no longer have a father. Shoot us until our mothers cry so loud it shakes neighborhoods. Shoot us until you are sure that by the time you call it in, every drop of our melanin-rich blood pools so you can see your reflection in it. You tell us to put our hands up on behalf of your white privilege. You tell us all lives matter knowing that you will probably put more money into the preservation of wildlife than you will ever put into the preservation of black lives. My heart goes out to the people who were slaved, were bought, and took whips to their skin to secure a better future for black boys and girls. My heart is forever cold to the racism you love to say it has ended, but it builds like fire in the back of your throats ready to spew like volcanoes. My anger is slowly rising and my hate for this country still stands. So it hurts that I pledge allegiance to your flag of the United States of America and to your republic for liberty and justice for who? My name is Jaden Taylor from Women's Leadership Project reporting for Rebel Alliance News. Thank you, Jaden Taylor. You can visit Women's Leadership Project at their website, womensleadershipla.org. Black Joy, that's a new sound of the protest. And I promise when I meet the king, he ain't asking me for none of this acoustic stuff. We gonna shake it up, spit a 16, and that's crazy. Recent developments in two South American nations illustrate some of the contradictions facing the nations of the global South as they try to defend and enhance their nat national sovereignty and their right of self-determination in the face of pressure from the centers of global imperialism in Washington, London, and Brussels. Don DeBar has more. A sit-down earlier this week between President Biden and President Lula da Silva of Brazil has raised some eyebrows among those on the left in particular. Also, a recent victory of the left in Ecuador has exposed some contradictions there as well. For more on that, we go to Nicaragua to speak with analyst and journalist Stephen Sefton, who spoke with him from Esteli via Skype on Wednesday. 
Stephen, welcome. Um, I guess there's something uh, that I saw that uh, I guess we have to talk about after you mentioned to me. Lula had met with Biden and issued some statement about Ukraine. I looked at the statement and he said they deplored the violation of the territorial integrity of Ukraine by Russia and the annexation of parts of its territory as flagrant violations of international law. This is supposedly a joint statement. It's on the White House website from President Lula and Biden. And uh, that is one thing that shows a, you know, apparent sea change in any event in the politics of Lula. And then, of course, we've got also what's happened in Ecuador. We've been talking about this tug of war between the right and the uh, soft left that's been going on in Latin America for a while. So let's dive into those two cases. Yeah, so I, I think that Lula's um, uh, uh, decision to allow that joint statement to be issued in both his name and uh, that of President Biden of the United States do indicate the way in which um, the so-called soft left um, or the, 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 the progressive left that have successfully um, achieved power in countries like Brazil, Argentina and Mexico um, are kind of prisoners to their their kind of social democrat ideology to the extent that they are continually looking over their shoulder at what um, the other other countries like the countries of the European Union or countries like the United States and Canada are thinking and what they want because those countries are important partners, uh, either economically or in other ways, for the countries concerned, in particular Mexico, of course, which is a member of the so-called TMEC um, agreement between the United States, Canada and Mexico. And in, 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 in Lula's case, um, the, he, he is the only Latin American president who has been this outspoken um, against the Russian Federation's decision to um, initiate a special military operation in defense of the Russian-speaking populations of what used to be eastern Ukraine and what are now part, the western parts of Russia. Yeah, Bolsonaro never said anything like that. Right. And so, and, and this points to things that we've, we've touched on in the past. For example, um, the, um, the, the contradictions that do exist beyond doubt with, among the BRICS countries, um, and in, in, you know, in, in particular Brazil, of course. But um, the, that, 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 decision, that decision by um, uh, Ignacio Lula da Silva, the Brazilian president, to put his name to that joint statement um, just shows uh, the, the kinds of contradictions that uh, these social democrat-style governments actually have. And, and you see it in different shapes and forms in depending on the country. It's different for Argentina, it's different for Brazil, it's different for Mexico. But it, you, you can see the way they're torn between wanting to promote a more or less anti-imperialist position and and actually being the prisoners of their uh, existing relationships with the United States and Europe. Um, and why why does that relate to the the situation in in, in Ecuador? Because what it means is that there's a, a a strong sense in which, despite the fact that as in Ecuador a couple of uh, weekends ago, they had this very important election for provincial. Um, uh, uh, governorships, um, and 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 also that 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 election was tied to a referendum on certain elements of Ecuador's democracy inherited from the days of former President Rafael Correa, um, that would have rolled back the citizen participation elements of. Rafael Correa's government program back then, uh, between whenever it was, 2008 and 2014 or so. So what, what happened in Ecuador was that Rafael Correa's um, citizens' revolution movement won seven of the uh, provincial um, governorships, including uh, Guayaquil and Quito, the two most important country, uh, cities in the country, the two most important um, parts of the country in, ter in terms of population and economic 
uh, economic significance. And so people were very, uh, people people who, who want the best for uh, Latin America and the Caribbean's regional majorities, impoverished majorities, were very heartened by that. But we have to remember that once uh, these progressive movements get into office, when they actually take power and, uh, and, and become the government, they then become subject to all the pressures that we can see being applied to Lula da Silva, to Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico, and to Alberto Fernandez in Argentina, for example. And also Zimar Castro in Honduras, and also oh, yeah, what we saw happen in, uh, you know, right right in front of uh, Lula, Lula himself, this, this happened, and, and Lenny Moreno in Ecuador. Yeah, and and so what what you can see is the way in which the United States and its uh, uh, allies among the regional oligarchies, the regional elites, work constantly to try and co-opt and subvert, as they did in the case of Lenny Moreno in Ecuador, who who was actually elected on the platform of uh, the Citizens' Revolution uh, movement, and then completely turned around and worked uh, very closely with the local right-wing elites and the United States government. And so it looks as though that uh, something similar, although this might be unfair, uh, something similar seems to have happened with uh, President Ignacio Lula da Silva in Brazil, and he's become his own Lenin Moreno in some ways. And that's not entirely fair, because on domestic domestic issues, he it looks as though he's going to push through a program of poverty reduction uh, much very similar to the one that he promoted so successfully during his um, his two periods as president in the the early years of this century um but certainly in in, in international affairs it looks as though he's going to uh, toe the uh, imperialist line of the United States with with this, and and he's demonstrated that by this absurd uh, claim that the Russian Federation um, uh, for uh, has has unjustly uh, occupied uh, the territory of Ukraine. When in fact, what happened was that it acted in defence of the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine that was under attack by its own government. For eight years. Which is some... You know. <laughs> All right, so just th- this question is one that's, you know, been bedeviling uh, people for maybe a century at this point. And that is the question of, you know, trying to have a uh, progressive domestic policy to solve the problems of working people while promoting and or endorsing the actions of imperialism and colonialism on the global stage which, of course, is about as anti-worker as you get. Yeah, and you can see this too. And uh, you can see this, uh, for example, another thing that um, we haven't mentioned is uh, that Lula da Silva has in, uh, 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 accepted the possibility of U.S. military collaboration in, in terms of defending the Amazon. And just, just a few years ago, that was anathema to the Brazilian military. Yep. Um, and th- th- but that position of Lula da Silva's in Brazil is also very similar to the position of Gustavo Petro in Colombia. Right. And in Colombia, Gustavo Petro has just introduced a not insignificant reform of the health system that will make the health system somewhat more democratic than it was and more accessible to people. Um, so you can see that in the same way that Lula is trying to develop um good domestic policies that will benefit the, the impoverished majority of, of the uh, of Brazil, just as Petro is doing in Colombia. At the same time, they're engaging in these, what most people, um, most revolutionary people and progressive people regard as counterproductive um, agreements with the United States that will allow the United States to uh, get a foothold in the management of the, the the tremendous resource, the natural resources of the Amazon. And they might as well, I mean, let's have the U.S. military come into our country uh, so that we can defend our sovereignty and uplift our people. It's not a good equation. Stephen, thank you. No. We'll speak with you exactly, next week. That's exactly right. It's bad math, right? We'll speak with you next week, and thank you for your time, as always. You're very welcome, Don. Thank you for inviting me. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News,
Here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. Following the devastating earthquakes last week, only nine European Union nations are providing humanitarian aid to Syria, compared to 21 nations with respect to Turkey. Jerome Hughes reports from Brussels. Lives have been saved in Turkey following recent earthquakes because the country had access to heavy lifting machinery. Experts say many lives were lost in Syria because sanctions prevented the country from having similar equipment. The catastrophe has just been debated in the European Parliament. Following the disaster, I contacted one of the largest aid agencies in Syria. I've spoken to Italian agencies and other NGOs. They all told me that the EU sanctions present an obstacle to humanitarian work. European Commission officials told legislators that just nine of the EU's 27 member states have supplied Syria with support. 21 have scrambled to help Turkey. The Commission also allocated an additional 3.5 million euros in emergency humanitarian funding to help our partners address urgent needs in Syria. This 3.5 million euro for Syrians pales into insignificance when compared to the 67 billion euro spent by the EU on Ukraine during the past 11 months. Experts have been saying for years that the bloc lacks unity when it comes to Syria. Countries are acting in their own way. There is no coordinated action. And this is one of the reasons that we're faced with this very big crisis, this mega crisis. Efforts by Western nations to overthrow President Bashar al-Assad have failed. Critics say interventionism has brought misery to millions of innocent people in the country. Some lawmakers want the pressure to be paused. In Syria, there are sanctions. We don't want to see more people die in the cold. They don't have medicines. We must put politics aside and human life first. It's been announced the EU will host a donors summit next month to gather money for the earthquake-hit regions. Political commentators are claiming it's already obvious that the vast majority of the money raised will go to Turkey, not Syria. Beijing has expressed its support of Iran in protecting its sovereignty and resisting unilateralism and bullying from the West. That's as the second day of Iranian president's visit to China continues. However, the U.S. has called on China to follow Washington's lead when dealing with Tehran. We've engaged with the PRC and other global stakeholders on uh, to encourage, in this case, the PRC to take steps to counter uh, Iran's policies that destabilize the region and threaten our partners uh, and our allies. Iran's nuclear program, its ballistic missile program, its other malign activities and influence are profoundly uh, destabilizing in the region. Uh, That is of concern not only to us, it should also be of concern to the PRC. That was U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price. For more, we go to China's news outlet CGTN. China would never do something that putting pressure on one country uh, with sacrifices the benefit uh, of the local people. President Xi Jinping said that China supports Iran in safeguarding its sovereignty, independence, territorial integrity and national dignity. That's the basement basement of the uh, relationship, diplomatic relationship. It's also a move that protects the the true multilateralism and uh, safeguards the common interests of you know, the both developing country. So Beijing's signal is quite clear that the cooperation between the two countries does not target any third party. China supports Iran in resisting unilateralism and bullying, as you mentioned, and opposes external forces interfering in its international affairs and undermining its security and stability. I think it's just the mentality of the U.S. mentality of, you know, getting alliance, uh, which uh, China uh, never seek a kind of um, a small group alliance. Coercive sanctions are something that really not strategy of resolving any disputes or confrontations. So dialogue and negotiation, again, it's the thing that resolve uh, any disputes. In Africa, a summit of the BRICS group of five emerging economies will focus on reconstructing global politics, economics, and financial architecture. That's according to the senior South African official who is hosting this year's meeting. RT's Karabolat Latla has the details. 
BRICS presents a very, a very interesting opportunity, especially for South Africa, still seen as one of the leaders on the continent. South Africa is the only African state that has a seat in the G20 and in the BRICS club as well. And they intend to use their chairmanship this year to further the BRICS, uh, to further the Africa agenda within BRICS, to identify opportunities where cooperation can be can be uh, um, fostered even more to represent uh, the views of the developing world, as it were. And let's not forget what BRICS uh, on its own represents. I mean, the five-member countries constitute some 40% of global population and account for a quarter of its GDP, and that's a lot of might. And this comes, of course, amid, amidst the, uh, uh, a changing of, uh, of global order and geopolitical landscape, as it were, the five member countries have been in talks about developing their own financial infrastructure, including a joint payment system. And we've seen some of the some of the member states within the BRICS actually giving up the dollar in favor of their own local currency in order to reduce this dependency on the dollar and on the euro. And this will smoothen that transition towards their own joint uh, payment system, which will facilitate their cooperation even more. But we're talking about BRICS that's also attracted attention from the greater global south, as it were. We heard President Ramaphosa coming back from Saudi Arabia to, uh, telling uh, the nation and the world at large that Saudi Arabia is very much interested in joining the club. Iran also uh, keen to join. And we understand that China is very much in favor of having an Argentina come to the fore. And let's not forget, of course, a, a longtime ally and uh, friend of Russia, Algeria, which would, you know, it's, it's the biggest country by landmass on the continent. And it's also keen to join. The members themselves have been talking about a multipolar world. And that has really uh, ticked the, the census uh, abuzz in the Western world as they go scouring all throughout the continent trying to dissuade African leaders and African countries to, to forming a stronger alliance with China or Russia. It's, uh, it's quite interesting considering how long America has not been invested on the continent and they are seen for what they are now. They're seen as people who are coming only because they are worried about having the African votes at international fora like the United Nations and getting one up on China and uh, Russia being their, their geostrategic enemies as it were. But this multipolar world is really scaring the, 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 the Western nations as it were. We understand that the Munich report details how African countries' uh, discontent with the West, as it were, does not necessarily translate into favoring a greater, a, a greater and more powerful Russia or China. I say, well, that's pretty much in the air, considering the length that South Africa is going to, to make sure that not only is China and Russia welcomed, but that they are truly taken advantage of and there is a symbiosis in terms of development for all countries, including the BRICS members. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Ninety seven FM KPFK. The only place where you will hear an eclectic mix of true diversity, true equity, true inclusion, true, true, true belonging and engagement with you, the listeners. Where the listeners and programmers, we're we're in a spiritual partnership here. We got this thing going on. We give, you give. We receive, you receive. How many generations of membership? KPFK membership. Pacifica KPFK membership is in your circle of influence, in your family, in your friendships. I know my mother has been listening to KPFK for a long time. My grandmother's youngest brother 
Shout out to Uncle Frank. He's been listening to KPFK for a long time. So, man, my family, we've been listening to KPFK. What about your family? Are you maybe perhaps you're the first one? Well, to be a KPFK member or a sustainer of such awesomeness, go to kpfk.org and click donate for that next level of connection with us, with me. Keep the momentum going. And I personally want to say thank you for being connected to us as partners and providing a space, a place, a voice for the voiceless. Hal G. Lord breaks down the ABCs of critical race theory. The 36 American states pushing laws or policies to reassert social regression, racial intolerance, and why bring the CRT fight home where our California votes still count and press Sacramento for laws and policies to nullify American hate and protect California communities. Speaking as a Californian, I'm pretty aware that California has its own dark history of racial injustice. Spanish missions, indigenous genocide, anti-Chinese leagues, the Manzanar camp, farm worker exploitation, redlining, the Zoot Suit riot, uh, the Watts riot, the Rodney King riot, the war on gangs, the war on drugs, and much, much more. But... Can't go into all of them, I mean, because time constraints. The point being that with California's evolving progressive values, we at least see our nation's state's history. Recognize the bad things there and know in our souls that it's wrong to whitewash history. Because history can't be changed just because it's ignored, and history in itself is neither good nor bad. We don't see history as a personal indictment. It's a record, a tool for learning where we must acknowledge the truth of the past, all the injuries, injustices, and mistakes so they can be addressed and corrected for a better future for everyone. Something most Californians recognize without the need for a lot of emotional investment. On the other hand, I guess conservative America disagrees with that philosophy. Enter the 1619 Project by New York Times author Nicole Hannah-Jones, a book offering a re-examination and college course study of the legacy of slavery in America and forming a basis for what we know as critical race theory. Critical race theory states, U.S. social institutions like the criminal justice system, education system, labor markets, housing market, and the healthcare system contain racism embedded in laws, regulations, rules, and procedures that lead to differential outcomes by race. Full stop. As a modern, progressively-minded person, I see nothing offensive in a statement of undeniable truth. As a Californian, I have to ask, wouldn't Red State America's anti-CRT policies suffocating the long-overdue American conversation about racial injustice make any hope of equitable U.S. democracy impossible? Media outlets like Fox News regularly demonize critical race theory to scare people who just can't recognize the truth about America's racist history in the institutional racism we see across the USA Today, which is a glaring example of American white supremacy using the privilege of mass media access to angrily assert that the real purpose of CRT is some plot to shame white people and denounce American greatness. That alone would be comically ironic if it wasn't screaming USA, USA, while we all watch American democracy die. Because today's alt-right American conservative can't separate their individual identity from America's identity as an institution. They see calling out America's racist past as calling them racist personally, a split personality disorder that shows both how embedded racism is in the red state American identity and how grievance driven that red state American identity is. If those people take offense to being called racist, even as the USA marches politically right and into fascism's embrace. 
what we have are red state Americans who might have recognized America's racist past, but have now absolved themselves with the false narrative that today's America is now somehow an equitable, racism-free republic. A republic built by venerated slave-owning founding fathers. A nation ordained by their own version of a blue-eyed god to be inarguably a white, Christian, capitalist, righteous, military empire, bestest country on earth. We speak English here now forever. Amen. Critical race theory was simply intended to illuminate a moral responsibility, to do something about how racism still impacts people today. But in today's divisive America, it's had a much more far-reaching and opposite effect. Even though Martin Luther King has been gone for 50 years, and even as Black History Month hits its midpoint, a majority of 36 American states are now pushing laws or policies to reassert social regression and racial intolerance. That's happening right now. Florida, Texas, Mississippi, Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Iowa, Montana, Georgia, Utah, Kentucky, Alabama, Virginia, New Hampshire, North Carolina, South Carolina, Arizona, and North Dakota have already passed legislation banning any institutional CRT discussion that the U.S. is inherently racist, as well as any discussion about racial bias, privilege, discrimination, or even oppression. Game over. Because with an openly partisan Christo-fascist Supreme Court ready to protect them, Conservative red state legislatures across America continue to roll back racial progress regarding everything from voting rights to police reform. Passing laws forbidding any teaching that might question America's greatness by even mentioning racism in American history and the institutionally oppressive race relations in today's United States. In Florida, books like The Color Purple by Alice Walker and Beloved by Toni Morrison are now banned from school libraries for racially criticizing U.S. history and policy. In Texas, lawmakers seek to replace the word slavery with the term involuntary relocation in school textbooks to ensure white students won't feel uncomfortable. In Mississippi, the Republican-controlled statehouse voted on Tuesday to create a separate court system and an expanded police force in the capital of Jackson to allow white state officials to appoint judges and prosecutors instead of allowing that city's majority black population to actually elect them. In Georgia, the governor actually called teaching about systemic racism anti-American as Georgia's Board of Education passed a resolution opposing the mention of slavery as an economic backbone in the founding of the United States. All anti-critical race theory scapegoating moves being made in red states to renormalize American racism and what everyone knows could become national policy in the next few years and take a generation or two at least to fight. For Californians, this means standing up for truth and equality and our own California progressive values in the California State House, with our school boards, and in our own local city halls before America goose steps in to cancel them. It means that even though the 1619 project itself didn't actually refer to California, we, as Californians, recognize institutional injustice in our own history, how American racism migrated to our nation state and the evil it's infused into modern California's own racial laws and policies and fight to change them. We bring the fight home, where our California votes still count. We press Sacramento for laws and policies to nullify American hate and protect California communities. And we don't ignore America's rush to a fascist future, like Americans are trying to ignore their racist past. This is Voices for the California Nation with Hal G. Lore. For the hashtag New Cal Exit podcast, Red Star Report, as heard on KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles, Rebel Alliance News. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar Tips. 
the Pacifica Listener Forum, an independent organization founded by Pacifica listeners, will be hosting an online forum this Sunday, February 19th, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Time. To register, send your contact information to friendsofpacifica at gmail.com. The topic for this online forum will be to how to address the current financial situation at Pacifica, including the plan to sell the KPFK building and other possible solutions. The feature panel will include Pacifica Executive Director Stephanie Wells, KPFK Interim General Manager Michael Novick, KPFK Chief Engineer Stuart Landau, KPFK PNB Member Elect Zuri Rideau, and PNB Member Jim Dingman. Everyone in the Pacifica community is invited to attend. Again, to register for this online forum this Sunday, February 19th, email friendsofpacifica at gmail.com. The Pacifica